Welcome to the Vote Her podcast, because when you vote, good things can happen. Whoop, whoop. <laughs> and we know that's definitely true. Hi, I'm Mira Davis, radio and TV host, uh, stress ball, and prominent Democratic activist. And I am Jen Jordan, and I am one of the thousands of women in the state of Georgia that made Joe Biden our next president. Senator elect Jen Jordan. Re-elect. That's right. Congratulations on winning your race. I want to say that first and foremost out of the gate. I I say stress ball because this is what's funny. Over the past couple of days, and by the way, we're all just so excited as we record this, we're just finding out how we have the very first female vice president. That's right. Vice President Harris. Yes. that just, oh. We shouldn't have any issues with Senator Purdue mispronouncing her name anymore. <laughs> yes, right. At least I would hope. But um, so we're processing all this information, but we do want to go over a couple of things. First, what we all did over the week, and I feel like Jen and I being, we're in, an, in, in it's a love fest, but it is a new relationship. But I feel like I may have crossed the line this week with my stalking of her because on Tuesday night, I was freaking out. I was feeling like it was a 2016 uh, redo. That really, really worried me. But you kept me calm through the whole time. (laughs) No, listen, it is because the way the votes came in. I mean, everybody was feeling that. But what we had to remember is that really the plan all along by Democrats, and especially the Biden-Harris team, was to try to juice mail-in ballots and absentees, partly because of the pandemic, right? They didn't want people to go out and vote and put themselves in danger. And so what we had to do is we had to wait for those votes to come in. So Jen's response to me was, just keep drinking. (laughs) (laughs) I couldn't sleep. I was stressing out. And then in the middle of the night, my husband came to bed and said, the needle for Georgia just went blue. And I'm like, I don't believe you. And then I go back to what we've been saying on this podcast, especially last episode, when we talked to Charles Bethay from The New Yorker, and what you've been saying all along is that Georgia was definitely in play. And I wasn't convinced, but now here we are. Look, it has been in play for a while. The thing has always been for us, there's always been an issue in getting our voters out and getting them to the polls when it really matters. Look, the, the Georgia GOP in particular has been very good about identifying their voters and then making sure that they get their ballots in or they show up on election day. And and we've always kind of run behind the ball, but this but this time we actually were able to pull it off. Well, we weren't able to pull it off everywhere. Unfortunately, a lot of the seats that we wanted to flip did not flip. So there are a lot of GOP victories in the state of Georgia. And I do want to talk a little bit about that and why that happened. Do you think that people who felt they couldn't vote for Trump decided, okay, I'm not going to vote for Trump, so I'm going to do Republican the rest of the ticket to kind of keep my... Uh, political principles going. Look, I, I maybe a small, small 
percentage of folks. But I think really what was at issue in terms of Republicans holding on to seats they held, there were, it's really kind of a threefold issue. One, we have to remember that these seats were gerrymandered in the first place to be Republican performing at like a 60% plus level. So you're already going in as a challenger, you know, in an uphill battle. Number two, Look, the Speaker of the House took this incredibly seriously, and you want to talk about the money that was pumped into these races? I mean, it's just one of these things where there's only so much you can do when you're being outspent by 10 times. And then three, really, it was COVID. Um, Democrats, I know my campaign did this. We made an intentional decision um, not to knock doors, not to have rallies, not to get out in the community because of the virus. We understood that it was going to kind of hurt us, you know, but it really did hurt us. And so, um, but take heart because look, all the ones that they were actually able to hold on to, they barely held on to. And so the way I look at it is when we are back at it and we have our ground game going, you know, we're going to be able to flip those seats. So let's congratulate Carolyn Bordeaux who flipped a seat Lucy McBath, which is kept a seat, kept a seat and and grew. And that's also the big story that nobody talks about. First, last time in 2018, we flipped approximately, I think it was 13 state house seats, right? And those margins were razor thin in a lot of those. And so a lot of Republicans said in the state, oh, come on, that was a fluke. So we'll be able to pick it up next time. Not only did we hold on to all of those, but we widened the margin. And it was the same thing in Lucy McBath's race. I mean, she she won by the skin of her teeth last time. And this time, it was a resounding victory. So that's, that's what we have to look at and be proud of. And her opponent, Karen Handel, suddenly d- deactivated her Twitter account, which was interesting. Uh, yeah. What happened, Karen? Look, I, I think it's... Probably good news for for Georgia that uh, my guess is that uh, Karen Handel has decided not to run again for another office. I would also like to bring up Marjorie Taylor Greene, who we talked about on this podcast a couple of times, who won in her district and she's affiliated with QAnon. But what was interesting to her about this about her this week is that she was picking fights and tweeting out propaganda. Now, we all knew she was going to win. She was basically unopposed. But some of her Republican colleagues now were pushing back on her. Um, you know, it's and you've said this early on. It's one thing to campaign on crazy. It's another thing trying to legislate on crazy. Well, not only that, but she was actually targeting um, fellow members of Congress and and trying to get her followers, I guess her Q followers to go after him, too. And they weren't. They, they didn't like that very Was that much. Dan Crenshaw? That was Dan Crenshaw. And he, he was not, yeah, he was not having that. So, okay, so all eyes are definitely on Georgia. So there's a lot to go over. We're going to have a guest today where we're going to go over and break down the Georgia numbers because I don't know if you had the same feeling of pride that I did. I know you did, Jen. I'm talking to you listening. When you saw Georgia going blue. This was something, and I've lived here 25 years, Jen. I never thought in my life I would ever, ever see that. That just, it it, it felt 
symbolic. I think it is just, look, it's the progress. It's where we are. We, as a state, um, are the voters are younger. Um, they're more diverse. We we have so many really smart folks who are paying attention. And listen, I think that's also one of the 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 untold stories too. Is the young people really came out and they voted? And man, God bless you. God bless you. And that's a great transition because now we got to get right into what matters and where the work is beginning, and that is the Senate runoffs. Boom, boom. Dun, 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 dun. All right. Wow. So so, so I, there's so much to unpack with the Senate runoffs, and that is between uh, John Ossoff and Senator David Perdue, the sitting senator, and Reverend Warnock, and sitting appointed Senator Kelly Leffler. Now, Kelly Leffler did beat her opponent, Doug Collins. They made nice with each other. And now here we are. Yeah, here we are. So we can start with that one. Couple questions. Um, Do you think Governor Kemp is feeling like, ooh, you in danger, girl, Governor Kemp. Not only was he being berated by the president, why isn't the state going red? But now um, there's a lot on the line with this. Yeah. I mean, Kemp has basically put everything on the line. I mean, everybody that that worked for Kemp to get him elected, they worked for Leffler. I mean, his chief of staff forever left to run the super PAC with the specific intent of getting her reelected. Millions and millions and millions of dollars have been spent by Kelly Leffler to keep this seat and look, she may have won, but let's be clear, it was not a resounding um, victory uh, for the senator. Will all the Doug Collins voters embrace her? No. No. I mean, look, no. Okay. Here's a little bit of her speech when she was all excited when she won and good for her. At Republican Senator Kelly Leffler's watch party in Buckhead election night, she maintains that she will continue to champion conservative values. We have to make sure we're delivering on that promise of educational opportunity. You know, there's a lot more work to do there. School choice. We have to lower the cost of health care. We have to make sure it's accessible and affordable and that it never becomes government-provided health care. We have to provide more affordable options. Now this is interesting, and I, I've watched her Twitter feed. I know it's surprising that, you, that me would look at Kelly Leffler's Twitter feed. So I definitely noticed out of the gate that her Twitter feed and her messaging there, which I follow very closely. Hi, Kelly. It, it, it appears that they're showing the softer side of Kelly. Like she's in a, like a glamour pose. Well, and- literally, it's like it's got like a filter on the picture. And now all of a sudden she wants to fight for everybody in Georgia. Yeah, it, it was a pretty it was a pretty distinct turn in terms of messaging. Right. So that's that's interesting. Uh, and so that's going to be, I believe, a very, very tough fight for both. Well, I want to get to the Purdue Ossoff in a minute. But um, so it's now 
getting people to make that decision. And a lot of Republicans and Republicans are going to vote for her because Republicans, I think, feel this is the way we can win it back if they feel burned by the presidency by going just going for it and going Republican all the way. Do you agree? Look, that could happen. But, you know, one of the reasons that we saw such tremendous turnout on the Republican side um, is attributable to Donald Trump. Right. His supporters feel very strongly about him and voting for him. The question is, especially if he's defeated, which he is, are they going to get back out for Kelly Leffler or David Perdue? And is Trump going to campaign for either one of them? You know, before when it really mattered in 2018, it was really different. But now is Trump grumpy and exhausted? Is he even going to do it? Will he come and campaign for them? I think that's a big question. And, and to be quite frank, my guess is no. My guess is he's going to blame them because from his perspective, it's never about him or something he did. It had Somebody else has to blame. So Senator Perdue didn't get out enough voters. Kelly Leffler didn't get out enough voters. Governor Kemp didn't get out enough Republicans to secure the state for him. So I don't think that he's going to be feeling very good about trying to come in and help them out. Now you have uh, Reverend Warnock. He came out with a commercial immediately, which was just, it was so awesome. I almost wondered if Jen wrote this because you always talk about, you know, attack ads and hating puppies. And if you haven't heard it or seen it, here it is. Raphael Warnock eats pizza with a fork and knife. Raphael Warnock once stepped on a crack in the sidewalk. Raphael Warnock even hates puppies. Get ready, Georgia. The negative ads are coming. Kelly Leffler doesn't want to talk about why she's for getting rid of health care in the middle of a pandemic, so she's going to try and scare you with lies about me. I'm Raphael Warnock, and I approve this message because I'm staying focused on what Washington could do for you. And by the way, I love puppies. Look, this is it was super smart, and also... We know what Leffler's M.O. is, or at least her campaign's M.O. I mean, I have never seen someone so aggressively attack their opponent like she did um, Doug Collins. And look, she was fast and loose with the facts. And, and Doug Collins pointed that out. So this is really smart on the part of Warnock because he's kind of inoculating whatever mess she's going to start saying um, and put money behind. And, and really all he needs to do is just keep replaying Doug Collins' own words, which is Leffler is lying and will do whatever she needs to do to get reelected. Oh, and we have a whole lot of that. You know, desperate politicians do desperate things. And Kelly Leffler's desperate. She's desperate to hide the fact that as the owner of the New York Stock Exchange, she spent $30 million trying to buy a Senate seat. And after a private coronavirus briefing, she dumped millions in stock. She profited off the pandemic while too many Georgians lost everything. I'm Doug Collins, the proven pro-life, pro-gun conservative. I approve this message because while Kelly does a great job looking out for herself, I will always look out for you. Doug Collins, trusted Trump defender. Also, I wonder 
how what, getting back to the president coming in and campaigning, we're going to see a lot of people descending on Georgia now. I think for uh, the Democrats, you're going to see all the celebrities. You're going to see all the money being pumped into Georgia, which, look, it doesn't always work. It didn't work for Jamie Harrison in South Carolina who lost. It didn't work for Mitch McConnell's opponent. It didn't work in Maine. That's a lot of the Republican criticism that I've been seeing is, you know, you can pump all the money you want to these elections and it doesn't guarantee you a win. No, it doesn't guarantee you a win. That's why the that's why the numbers have to be there. And I think that's why Georgia always was really grumpy about this, because it was almost like anybody on the ground who was looking at the numbers, looking at the voters, kind of seeing the transition, especially in the suburbs of Atlanta metro area, knew knew that there was the ability to make it happen here. And people would rather give millions and millions of dollars to Amy McGrath in a race that honestly, if you're looking at the data, there was no way in high, holy, whatever, that she was ever going to pull that off. So we're now going to see, would would you agree Obama's probably going to come to town? Do you think Kamala will come to town? Like who, are they going to come, are they going to have rallies for Ossoff and Warnock? Are they going to campaign together? What, what's that going to look like? I'm not sure, but I will say that the one thing, kind of what we were talking about earlier, the one takeaway from the 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 razor thin losses that that Democrats at the state legislative level had is that we can't cede our ground game. And we have got to figure out a way to safely get out there, go door to door, get our voters out, you know. Because that's what we're good at. We're good at that. We're good at the ground game. And I think that's really the only way we're going to be able to pull it off. But yeah, every one of those people you just cited, they'll be here. Not only will they be here, but they'll be here multiple times. And then you had Ossoff doing a press conference immediately, uh, even before they officially called it, even though we, we knew he was in this runoff. And here's a little bit of that. So now this race is headed to a runoff. And the people of Georgia will decide on January 5th, 2021, who represents us in the United States Senate. We have all the momentum. We have all the energy. We're on the right side of history. Y'all ready to work? We're just getting started. Now, at the time we're recording this, we have not really heard from Senator David Perdue. There's been some sort of press conferences. And uh, I had joked on Twitter that he's going to have to cancel his tea times on Sea Island because, you know, the holiday season where he was going to be able to just kind of relax and have a good time, he's going to have to actually go to work now. Well, and look, what's going to be really interesting for them, I'm talking about the Republicans, is like we've talked about before, the way Purdue has approached this race has been very different than the way Leffler has approached it in terms of the language, the messaging, the social media. I mean, Leffler's social media has been wackadoodle. It's on fire. There's two accounts. I can't, I can't keep up with it. Uh, and it's clear Purdue doesn't have a social media presence at all. I mean, that's one per, like person assistant. Well, and he's tried to be like the most non-controversial kind of person. And that's all she's tried to do is to be right, controversial. Right. Now they basically have to run as a ticket. So the question is, how are they going to do that? Well, we're going to keep our eye on that. 
Uh, in the coming weeks, you'll be hearing us talk about that. In the meantime, make sure you sign up for your absentee ballot. You can get that right now. At this moment, you can go and register for that at sos.ga.gov. Uh, Is that right? Did I say that right? Actually, I think it might be. Let me give you the very specific. Okay. It's ballot request, one word, dot sos dot ga okay. dot gov. Okay, and you great. can go ahead and electronically request your absentee ballot. All you need is your Georgia driver's license so you can put in um, your driver's license number or ID number. Um, go ahead and just get it done. Get it done. Okay, now it's time for our guest. Well, we're really excited to have Connor Sin with us today. And, you know, you need to follow him on Twitter. But specifically, he is a Bloomberg Opinion columnist. And he's been a contributor to The Atlantic and Business Insider. And he has had some really, really interesting observations in terms of the elections um, and what's been going on. So welcome, Connor. Thanks for having me. So your thoughts. Uh, So obviously a lot has happened in Georgia since Tuesday. I think for people who are really dialed in and watching, if if anyone was looking at the New York Times needle that they had for our state as the initial returns came in, and it was tilting pretty far to Republicans, and I know a lot of my Democratic friends were freaking out, but that was due to what they, their, their training set, so to speak, was they saw what was going on in Florida, which was leaning towards Republicans, and they were extrapolating that onto Georgia, even though our, our demographics are much different than theirs. And so sort of early on, as the Georgia vote was coming in, but it was predominantly rural, just because our metro Atlanta counties take so long to come in, I was looking at the returns that were coming in, and our rural counties relative to our baseline weren't looking that bad for Democrats. And so I just thought, let's wait for the core counties of Atlanta to come in. Things don't look that bad here. I think there's still math to do this. And it's just been exciting over the ensuing days to watch the numbers get closer and closer and see where we are. Yeah, I think you make a good point in terms of the rural counties and even uh, the exurban counties, because what we saw was, yeah, Democrats were getting beat. Um, we never thought we could win it. Uh, but the whole point, or at least the strategy that I've always thought is the winning strategy, is that we just need to lose less. And that's really what you are seeing with those returns. Yeah. And, and unlike in many other states, even North Carolina, where sort of these non-college white voters that we've been so focused on, still there was still a decent amount of Democratic support in other states. Um, unfortunately, in Georgia, you know, Democrats have kind of bottomed out here. And so there was really no room to go, nowhere to go but up. And even if you look at the sort of swing that we have between 2016 and 2020, even in North Georgia with you know, Doug Collins country or Kelly Loeffler country, Marjorie Green, there actually was a slight shift to Democrats. And so to Senator Jordan's point, Democrats did do a little bit better there. And in such a close race, that did matter. It was interesting to see in some of the smaller, more rural counties, as to your both of your points, Trump didn't win as big as people thought that when, especially when we're seeing these absentee ballots come in, uh, he wasn't doing as well as he did in 2016 in some of these areas. Yeah. And I think that that made the difference, right? I mean, we're talking 7,000 votes. Who knows what it'll be at the end of the day, but that, that was enough to, to win the state for him. You think about one additional trip by whether it was Joe Biden or Kamala Harris or president Obama, that one extra trip might've made the difference. I I think it absolutely did. So, but what's interesting is what do you think apart from losing less, you know, what really was kind of the winning coalition, do you think for Biden? Or do you think, I mean, can we, do we know yet? 
I think if you look at just the counties that have swung and thinking about the demographics of those counties, the sort of the Biden coalition actually is a very Georgia coalition. It's black voters, which in a state with a, an electorate that, that's 30 percent black is huge, obviously. But as we've seen in recent years, that wasn't enough in Georgia. But this big suburban swing towards Democrats, not just in Metro Atlanta, but also in Savannah and Columbus and Augusta and Macon. Um, was enough to to swing things. You know, so what's fascinating to me is when Republicans took over the state, you know, it started really in the late 90s. You could really kind of start to see the trend. Their coalition really was suburban voters too, but they did suburban voters in rural, white, non-college educated. But it looks like for Democrats in terms of trying to swing the state back, I mean, and, and I'm not even talking about total control, but just maybe a little bit, you know, more moderation. It looks like the coalition may be suburban voters and, and black rural voters. I think that's right. And, you know, Democrats are still going to be in the minority in the state, but it's going to be a little strange just because the Republican state leadership and and also in, in the, the legislature there's really going to be less and less of a suburban coalition for them. So it's sort of, you know, the, the, the coalition that delivered the state to Joe Biden is not the coalition that runs the state. And I think that's going to create for some, some challenge over the next two to four years. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I feel like in a weird way, it's kind of a mirage in a sense, like just to see Georgia blue. But do you think any of that Republican leadership is thinking, well, shit, maybe we need to evolve a little bit? From what I can tell, and I would love to hear Senator Jordan's perspective on this, Speaker Ralston is maybe the only Republican who sort of understands this and is is trying to keep the Republican Party somewhat suburban. Um, you, don't, you certainly don't see that from the governor, although maybe after this election, that'll change somewhat. No, you're exactly right. I mean, so this is my worry. My worry is that there is a coalition or a certain group of elected Republicans in the General Assembly who do see the writing on the wall, but instead of of viewing it the way Speaker Ralston does and, and trying maybe to moderate and evolve a little, they kind of look at it as their last hurrah. And so my concern is that we may see even more um, kind of social, you know, super bad stuff in terms of legislation. So that means kind of bringing back in the the cancel culture, the wedge issues, uh, bringing back into HB 481, the heartbeat bill, the religious freedom. Do you think they're going to start looking into bringing that back to drum up that base since it seems to be effective in some ways? I don't think it's really about the base. I mean, I think some of these people really believe that that's what they're there to do. And if they see the state starting to slip away in their opportunity to deliver this for their people, I think I think they're going to try to do it. And I think that's going to present some real issues for Speaker Ralston trying to keep his kind of coalition together. Um, so there may be opportunities for Democrats, but but it's probably going to involve actually some coalition building with some more of the evolving Republicans. We want to talk a little bit more about the runoffs, Connor. By the way, you can read uh, in Bloomberg Opinion, you write a great piece about what really happened in Georgia. And I think it's so nice to have people like you on the ground in Georgia rather than someone and no shade to some of the major newspapers or whatever, but to just be like an outsider. Like there's been so many jokes about people not being able to pronounce DeKalb County (laughs) and not understanding what's really going on in Georgia. But all eyes are going to be here 
over the next two months with these two Senate runoffs. And it's so much more important. It's like literally like hanging in the balance, the the Senate. So what do you think? I mean, what 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 do you think will happen? Do you think it is achievable for Democrats at this point? Well, I went back and looked at the runoff for the secretary of state race in 2018, because I remember after Stacey Abrams, you know, lost the governor race so closely how defeated Democrats were. And I just remember in my head that runoff not being very competitive. But, uh, you know, our former Congressman Barrow only lost that race by 3.8 percent, which was a smaller margin than I recall. And I think that, you know, with the stakes a lot higher this time, another couple of years of demographics and voter registration, certainly the energy will be there more than that. I mean, obviously not like the presidential but I think the two races are actually somewhat distinct, even though, you know, some people might think it'll be, you know, two either way, both Democrats or both Republicans. And I think to some extent, um, Ossoff and Leffler both have their candidacies in, in just inextricably tied to President Trump's four years in office. You know, Ossoff first ran for Congress in 2017 in response to, to Trump winning. And Leffler, of course, has tied herself to Trump. And I, I think with both of them, I have questions about what their voice is going to be without Trump in the White House anymore, whereas Purdue and, and Warnock have the opportunity to be more independent to some extent, where Purdue ran in 2014 pre-Trump. And then because to some extent, the special election was more about Leffler versus Collins with Warnock being able to fly under the radar. He's got this you know, pastor image that he can focus on and isn't as tied to Trump. So I, I wonder if that's going to come out to some extent. I, I'm just so curious to... to, to <sighs> I'm frankly very nervous about that one because Democrats are, are notoriously like really not good at voting in runoffs. But I wonder if it'll be different this time based on the success of mail-in voting. Do you think that is going to be able to move that New York Times needle that you speak of? Yeah. And, and I wonder, too, just, you know, so much of the challenge has been belief, right? It can, can Georgia flip blue? And I think with the presidential, we've seen that it can and I, I think that could be huge for Democrats psychologically to say, look, we've done this and we can do it again. And so, I, you know, even though Joe Biden doesn't need Georgia for his coalition, I think those those 7000 votes can mean a lot emotionally to say, like, we've proven now that this can, can be done and let's do this again in January. Look, it, it means a lot to me emotionally. <laughs> but um, so what do you think the effect of Trump's defeat? is going to have on these these runoff elections? That to me is the big question that we don't really have a good way of, I'm so data-driven and poll-driven, and we don't really have an answer to that yet. We saw, you know, will, will Trump's rural base show up for him with him not on the ballot? Will Black voters turn out without the threat of, you know, without trying to defeat Donald Trump? Will, you know, kind of this Northern Suburban Coalition that's been so anti-Trump still be motivated to vote for Democrats or vote at all? And, you know, I, I think the, it's it's kind of, you know, so much criticism of the polling industry to say, ah, well, don't worry about the polls. But I really do want to see those first couple polls. So, you know, what is what do people think this is going to look like? You being such a data guy, uh, what do you make of that? Uh, the polls? I mean, the everybody was just completely trashing. I mean, poor Nate Silver and Dave Wasserman and Frank Luntz. I mean, those guys were just getting just dragged through the mud because how do you think the polls did stack up to what really happened? I mean, they weren't off on everything. Well, the, the strange thing is that Georgia maybe was the most, the state that followed the, the expectations more than any other state, because the thought was Democrats might still flip more congressional seats in these suburban areas. And, you know, Ka Carolyn Bordeaux did win. But that was the only seat Democrats flipped in the entire country. And in terms of the polls, you know, the polls had Democrats flat to maybe up a percent. And that's kind of how things are going to shake out here. So 
as much as things might have gone wrong for the polling and election forecasting industry in the rest of the country, in Georgia, things kind of turned out the way that the experts thought they would. Yeah. I mean, and I think we have to wait till everything's in. Mm -hmm. I don't think we know necessarily how off they were. I think we know they were off in some ways, but we're not going to know until all the votes are in. And I think on Tuesday, everybody was losing their minds and they're like, oh my God. But, you know, now that we're each day, we, we get more votes in. And, and I think once the dust settles, then we're going to be able um, to really make a determination one way or the other. It's going to be a tough mountain to climb, I think, for both for Ossoff and, and for Warnock. Do you have any ideas on what strategy? I'm not saying that you're picking a side, Connor, um, but what's a winning strategy for, for, for all four of them? Do you have any feedback on that? I think for Democrats, you're sort of, I would think you're trying to turn out black voters and keep the suburban white coalition in your corner. And so, you know, that resistance to Donald Trump doesn't really matter anymore. And so I think you have to give people a reason to come out. And so that that means, you know, these two votes can flip the Senate. And so what can that deliver for people without turning off independents and moderates? And so, you know, things that pull very well nationally with Democrats and, in, and Republicans are raising the minimum wage, um, you know, a, a COVID relief bill for working families and small businesses and schools. You know, marijuana pulls very well, but I, and maybe in socially conservative Georgia, that's a little skittish. But it would it would sort of be things like that rather than these big ideological or you know, Trump, Republicans, Democrats, I think it's putting very tangible things on the, the table for people and say, if you vote for us and we win, we can deliver these things for you. Right. And, and for if you Republicans, vote for the they're going to do the opposite. Right. And, it's the opposite. Sorry. No, no, no. Go ahead. Yeah. They're going to say, you know, it's socialism if you elect Warnock and, and Ossoff and you're going to get Green New Deal and AOC. And, and so that's what they're going to try to do. But if I were Democrats, I would just say, here are these few tangible things we can deliver for you. That won't be scary. Do you think that some of that rhetoric is effective? Because I think it is. When they cry socialism and what you mentioned, Green New Deal and uh, defund the police and a lot of those buzz phrases that people don't necessarily understand what they mean because, you know, ow, reading is hard, (laughs) but it works, man. I mean, you know, you, you give a slogan. Um, so do you think it's smart for the Republicans to just, you know, it, it, it worked before. Let's do it again. I do. I think that the country, I think most of the country has actually shifted left to some extent. But, you know, whereas, you know, Senator Jordan's district is probably in line with her. They're not looking for AOC type solutions. So if you can convince moderate and Republican voters that that's what, you know, Democrats are looking to do, you're going to turn them off. And so you have to you need that messaging to say, like, no, this is what we're looking to do. We either disavow that or that's not what we're about. And that's a you know, nuance is very difficult in, in politics in such a polarized environment. Yeah. Well, I think I think you're exactly right. You've got to talk about real things that matter to people um, that are salient to their lives. And you've got to make it real for them that that I mean, I think that's why a lot of folks understood that the presidency was so important, because the last four years we have absolutely seen um, how that really does impact everybody, you know, no matter how rich or poor you are in this country. And so now we just have to really do the messaging in in terms of of this U.S. Senate race, because it is going to be incredibly important. Would you crank up the social issues in, as far as like, look, I mean, Amy Coney Barrett is the uh, new Supreme Court 
judge and you're talking about healthcare and you're talking about reproductive rights. So how much do you think that should or will play into the messaging, Connor? I think Republicans will talk about the courts in terms of, you know, Ossoff and Warnock will pack the courts and that's going to be part of their messaging. I don't know that courts are such a winning message for Democrats, especially in a state like Georgia. And I think it'd be really hard to convince people, you know, Joe Biden's president now, what are you going to do to my health care? And you can try to explain it and say the courts are going to overturn it. But I think that's a tough sell to, you know, these moderate voters who you're looking to turn out for you in January. Yeah, but I do think that and not from a, a big social messaging place. But look, HB 481 is going to be up in front of Justice Barrett. And I don't think I don't think there's any question that we we know what that new kind of supermajority um, on the Supreme Court is going to do. I think that does matter, especially if we're trying to keep kind of this suburban coalition kind of in the game with us, because That's I think true. I think it, it's super important to uh, suburban women, um, to college educated women. You know, I think I think that is an issue we have to be willing to talk about and actually talk about uh, the consequences for that, because it's not just abortion. What we're talking about is the ability to even get contraception. I mean, you know. The whole idea that that they could say that, you know, you have to get permission from your husband to even get a prescription to, you know, a, the birth control pill is it's a little bit scary. And it should be scary for all women under his eye. Praise be. Oh praise I, think be. I think, I think pr- protecting <laughs> rights is probably much more popular with moderates than, you know, radical court stuff. So I, I think you're absolutely right about that. Yeah, I think it's we don't really want anything crazy to happen. We just want to live our lives and have our children and be safe. I mean, these are some real core messaging. And, you know, the the Republicans with the whole scary messaging, you know, it worked to some extent. It does work. I mean, it does. I mean, I kept seeing on, on Twitter at on Wednesday morning, it was when the, when it appeared that the Democrats were down and it was not trending, that it was trending like more for President Trump, it was like, well, maybe you shouldn't have bombed your cities. Well, maybe you shouldn't have rioted. And I just, that hurt my heart so much. I'm like, I'm not rioting. I, I don't. Anyway, Connor, so what will you be doing as far as your coverage in Bloomberg over the next couple of weeks? What does that look like for you? I think to sort of, you know, waiting for the dust to settle. Now we have a president-elect call. We're going to get cabinet by the end of the month. So trying to figure out, you know, not just in January, what does the Georgia runoff look like, but what does the the Biden administration look like with a, you know, either slightly Republican uh, Senate or a divided Senate or a, you know, 50-50 Senate. So, and again, I I actually could see the first Warnock-Leffler poll being very good for Warnock because his favorables are much better than hers. She really beat herself up to, to win over conservative voters in the primary and Warnock didn't really get touched. And so he's, his favorable should be very high, but I, I think that that will probably narrow as the campaign goes on, as she shores up her report, her support and as she attacks him and, and tries to drag his favorables down. She's rated the number one conservative. I always wondered like, who rated you? Is there a contest? Like who was there an award? Was there so a, like site selection <laughs> magazine? Right? Here's an interesting <laughs> idea that um, I don't know if this, if Democrats will do this, but I think this could be compelling where the house led by speaker Pelosi passes a, you know, Georgia pork bill and, you know, it's COVID relief and Georgia gets a hundred billion dollars. And you sort of see, will will Leffler and Purdue vote for this or not? And if not, then that's something Warnock and Ossoff can run on. 
Right, because she, I, I, I haven't heard it that much, but I heard she grew up on a farm. <laughs> I've heard that before. <laughs> yeah, but not in Georgia. So. But yeah, if we truly are this <laughs> battleground, then in, in theory, we could start getting the Iowa corn type subsidies for whatever that is for Georgia. So that, that to me is pretty interesting. Oh, fantastic. That sounds... Well, Connor, uh, we appreciate your knowledge and your data and your words in Bloomberg. Bloomberg, Everybody should follow you uh, at Connor Sen on Twitter. Uh, you really provide some interesting information and viewpoints into Georgia. And thanks for uh, keeping all those coastal elites uh, and the journalists uh, on their toes by, by keeping it real. We really appreciate you. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, thanks to Connor Sen. That was a very, very informative. And as we go through the weeks, there's going to be a lot more conversations about these Senate races because everybody's got their eye on Georgia. And that's why we're so happy we have you along on the Voter Podcast. So a couple of things that we want to recap from the week, because this was one of the craziest weeks in politics and especially in Georgia politics. A couple of things that I loved on social media was John Legend singing Georgia on my mind. That was amazing, I have to say. Georgia, oh, Georgia, the whole day through, just an old sweet song keeps Georgia on my mind. But my favorite part was Chrissy Teigen, uh, John's wife, saying he's been waiting for hours to do this, as in they were waiting for the numbers to change so he could do that, which I think is funny. Which every one of us was doing the very same thing. Refresh, 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 refresh. refresh. And that was... I was like, I got to hold myself back from bothering Jen. Jen, do you know something? Because everybody thinks that you know something first. And I don't. And what was interesting (laughs) is so I pulled the trigger that we had uh, passed, that we had, that Georgia, that Biden had pulled ahead in Georgia too quickly. And all it was based on was my own, like, looking at the numbers and seeing kind of how they were coming in. Uh It had nothing to do with real information. And my phone blew up, Twitter blew up. And I was like, I got to go to bed because clearly (laughs) this is, I've kind of hit the wall. Well, we have to really give a hand to some of the great journalists out there, like Stephen Fowler, like Greg Bluestein, like Justin Gray, Emma Hurt from WABE. I mean, there's just been so many of them. Oh, yeah. Uh, Nicole Carr. And then there was the local journalist down in Clayton County that everybody was following, that started to follow. Did you see that? Uh, So she was the only one who was actually in the Clayton County Board of Elections. Yeah, she was incredible because literally all eyes of the nation were on Clayton County Board of Elections. And she was in there. And anytime somebody would come in or go out, she'd take a picture of them and she'd (laughs) post it on Twitter. And like the whole world just, you know, would lose it. So y'all should follow her. She's at at R. Kemp News. Um, Robin Kemp, thank you so, so much. Um, you you at least made all of us feel like we were right there with you. I love it. I love it. I just followed her. 
And we had some really funny moments. I mean, all so were you are you more Steve Kornacki or John King? Like, who were you watching? CNN, MSNBC, Fox News? Neither. I literally was going to the individual Board of Elections county websites, watching as stuff came in because we knew what the numbers were in terms of how many absentee ballots were out, you know, so it's that's all I've been doing. I haven't been paying attention to them. Well, I watched so much John King and I, I got to really have a tip of the hat to, I know people love Steve Kornacki and MSNBC, but, you know, I got to stay Atlanta loyal to CNN. And it is amazing to me that this John King knows every county, every town, every demographic. That is a brilliant, brilliant mind. And I know these guys love staying on the air all week, but I mean, that's, that's a pretty amazing. But Anderson Cooper's line, when the president came out, uh, I, I believe it was Thursday night and gave this speech that was truly unhinged. It was a gut punch, right? It was just like, dude, what is wrong? Like, I, cause I think the, the propaganda and the lying just sort of worked for the past couple of years. And this time, the numbers and the facts were right there for everybody to see. And Anderson Cooper's response to it was just, well, here it is. We have never seen really, other than, well, I don't think we've ever seen anything like this from a president of the United States. And uh, I think as Jake said, it is, it's sad and it is truly pathetic. And of course it is dangerous and of course it will go to courts, but you'll notice the president did not have any evidence presented at all. Nothing. No real actual evidence uh, of any kind of fraud. He talked about people putting up papers in windows. He talked about things that he'd seen on the internet. That is the president of the United States. That is the most powerful person in the world. And we see him like an obese turtle on his back, flailing in the hot sun, realizing his time is over but he just hasn't accepted it and he wants to take everybody down with him, including this country. <laughs> I mean, I, I watched that in real time and thought, did he really say that? That's awesome. It was such a, a, a really wonderful word picture. <laughs> and I have no doubt that somebody may try to do some kind of artistic rendering of that. I really hope they do. And we do have a shore Jan of the week because, of course, we do. There are probably a lot of them. But that goes to the NR the uh, GOP chairwoman, Ronna McDaniel, who had some sort of Georgia conspiracy theories with, with shady ballots. Uh, but I, I don't know. Where are they? Ronnie, you said that uh, at the beginning that you would be laying out specific violations, and we haven't heard any yet. So I, yeah, I, yeah, I do have some specifics. I was told to hold off on on sharing those, but I do have some specifics. We're gonna we're gonna wait until the attorneys look at it. But the specifics we have in Georgia are very serious. Sure, Jan. Sure, Jan. Sure, Jan. Yeah. <laughs> So let's be clear here. The state is run by Republicans. The secretary of state is a Republican. Republicans held on to seats, right? So it's one of these things where you can't have it both ways. You can't say, ooh, we won, and ooh, something bad happened. <laughs> so it, it's just, 
yeah, it's it's definitely a sure jam. So we're going to be keeping you updated in the next couple of weeks. Listen, go ahead and sign up for your absentee ballot immediately. We got to get to work with Warnock and Ossoff. We got to get to work on this runoff. Like we're, we're going to take this win and be excited about Georgia, but now the work really begins. So I want you listening to call three friends, make sure they're registered to vote, make sure that they have their absentee ballot, make sure if they know who's somebody who's turning 18, that they can register to vote. We're going to have more details on that. What else should people do? Take a deep breath, get some sleep. It's going to be a long two months, but listen, it's all it's all on the line. And everybody, you can call me because everybody likes to text me and say to say, what's Jen saying? What is Jen saying? <laughs> you know, I get that a lot. <laughs> well, it's one of these things where I'm glad you don't tell them what I say. because Sometimes it's not appropriate. But I will say that what we've seen from this election is exactly how Mara always begins our podcast, which is when you vote, good Good things things happen. happen. And that is a quote directly from Vice President Kamala Kamala Harris. Harris. When we vote, things change. When we vote, things get better. When we vote, we address the need for all people to be treated with dignity and respect in our country. We want to thank Terminus Records for our music today, Terry White for our art, as always, Christina Larringer, who does the producing and the editing of this show. Please get in contact with us. Follow at Senator Jen, at Mara Davis. Email us at voteherpodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at podcastvote. Did you get all that? Well, there's one more thing. You need to make sure and subscribe, like us, share it, tell all your friends. Georgia is the heartbeat of politics right now, and we are going to keep you covered. Hello, President Biden.